Hello, everyone, and welcome back to NASA's Universe of Learning's Diaries of the Cosmos. I'm Rutuparna Das, and we're continuing our story about hydrogen hunters. Last time, we followed Dr. Cecilia Payne-Gaposchkin on her journey through science and spectroscopy, and on her discovery that stars are made up mostly of hydrogen and helium. Today, we're chatting with astrophysicist Dr. Antera Basu Zaik, a NASA scientist who is currently studying stars and galaxies using hydrogen spectral lines. Dr. Basu Zaik received her Bachelor of Arts in Astronomy from the University of California, Berkeley, and then got her PhD from Columbia University. Currently, she is a research faculty at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County's Center for Space Sciences and Technology, and is a research scientist for NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, High Energy Astrophysics Science Archive Research Center, and X-ray Astrophysics Laboratory. Her research is in X-ray binaries and starburst galaxies, which we will be hearing more about today and in part three. Talking to Antara is Elizabeth Gutierrez. Elizabeth earned her bachelor's degree in physics and astronomy from the University of Texas at Austin. As an intern with the Smithsonian American Women's History Initiatives, because of her story program, Elizabeth researched and developed our cosmic story for today. I'll now hand it over to her to interview our expert. Thanks, Rutu. Hello, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Gutierrez. As Rutu mentioned, today we will be talking with Dr. Antara Basuzaik. Antara, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. So, Antara, I'm wondering how you actually first became interested in astronomy, because I feel like astronomers might have some kind of story of, you know, looking at a meteor shower for the first time like Cecilia Payne Kaposchkin did, or visiting a local observatory or planetarium. What first sparked your interest in astronomy? Yeah, so I have a couple of childhood memories. The first is um, a family friend had a was an amateur astronomer, and he bought his um, telescope and had it set up on Saturn and was so excited that he called us all over to look at it. And I remember looking at Saturn, which was not very impressive by my eye, and was like, looked through the telescope and was like, wow. And it just kind of blew my mind that, you know, something that was basically just a, you know, glimmer on the sky turned into something that, you know, had moons and you could see the rings and it was just so beautiful. And it made me wonder what else is hidden out there in space. And so I think that that was the first thing that kind of sparked my imagination. But I I do have to say I have fond memories of my grandfather, which is um, I remind him that, you know, do you remember we, we, I was probably four or five at the time and we went to a beach um, in Goa, um, and we and we were laying out, and it was nighttime, and he started telling me all the mythological stories of the constellations and the stars. And um, I think it was my earliest connection to the night sky, and just, you know, um, it was fun. You know, it was a fun, hearing stories like that was, was a nice way to appreciate the night sky. 
And then um, in fourth grade, we did the walk of the planets, you know, which is the scale solar system um, exercise where the sun is the size of a beach ball. And it was elementary school, and I got to the edge of the field, and the teacher said, okay, so this is where Jupiter is, and said, you know, that's all we can walk. Um, but then you see that stop sign over there? That's Saturn. And kept going all the way out. And, then, you know, back when I was in elementary school, Pluto was a planet. And Pluto was in the nearest shopping center, which, you know, I had never even considered walking to because it was sort of beyond what I thought, you know, my four fourth grade, eight-year-old legs could, could go. So um, I realized that space was so big. And so again, it was that same, being hit by the same information of like, wow, there's a lot out there. And I just wonder what, you know, what things we can't even see. So I think the more I learned about astronomy on my own and, you know, learned in school or from friends or whatever, I was more and more fascinated by um, you know, the extremes of astronomy. So like things are so big and you have the biggest scales. And then later on I learned about physics and, you know, these, these smallest subatomic particles um, make up sort of, you know, what happens at the centers of the sun. And then you have the hottest and you have the coldest environments in space. And, you know, the densest, which is, you know, black holes, and that, that whole topic blew my mind. So I think I, you know, kept on finding out more and more about astronomy. It was just, it stretched my imagination beyond what, um, mm -hmm. what I was used to, and that, that was really something that I loved. It sounds like you had a lot of experiences growing up that really just um, led your curiosity to many places, especially wondering about what is there in the universe. I'm wondering... Um, after grade school, what led you to continue this path to where you are today, working for um, NASA and these other great institutions? Yeah, so I mean, while I was fascinated from this young age, I didn't really know that you could be an astronomer or astrophysicist or do this as a life career. So um, when I came to thinking about careers, I was kind of like, well, I guess I could be a doctor or a lawyer or I don't know. Nothing really kind of caught my fancy. I just kept coming back to, well, I think astronomy is really cool. Um, and so this was about 10th grade. I was taking the, I think it was the PSAT. And I noticed that um, under the listings of careers, astrophysicist was on that list. And I was like, oh, I didn't know this was a career. So I marked the box. And then that meant that for the next few months, I started getting materials in the mail about astronomy programs and physics programs and kind of learning more about it. And it turned out that for um, my, my high school, we had a graduation requirement of doing some sort of a, an experience, it was called. And um, it could be anything from like learning to play the piano, but um, I took the opportunity to job shadow somebody and I was very lucky because my father worked at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory in California. And there's um, an astronomy you know, department there. And so he set me up to shadow somebody there for, for a full day. And so this was actually where I learned what modern astronomers do, that you know, they're not just looking through telescopes and kind of looking at things and making qualitative assessments, that they actually take data on these CCD detectors. And this is actually where I learned what spectroscopy was. And so it was a great experience, a great learning experience. I also learned what career astronomers do. And so that was the first sort of um, 
realization that I, I could do this. I, I could do this as a career, for, and that seemed like the best fit for me. So when I went to college, um, I did actually continue doing some research at Lawrence Livermore because I was, you know, my, my job shadow experience gave me kind of a, a good connection to that, and I was able to set up some research through Lawrence Livermore, and I went to UC Berkeley, and by the time I finished college, I have to say I was a little burnt out, and I didn't see a lot of role models who, in my opinion, were balancing work and life the way I wanted for myself, and so I decided maybe this is not what I want to do as a career. But I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I spent one year in industry at a telecommunications company. And this was, um, they had satellites. And so I worked on commanding and then working some mission control for their satellites. And that sounds really exciting, but it didn't feel like a right fit for me. I was actually a little bored. And so um, I switched and I tried another year of doing something different, which was teaching astronomy in a science museum um, in Oakland, California, which is the Chabot Space and Science Center. And that was actually a great experience for me. I loved teaching. But what I felt was I was missing learning for myself. Like you mentioned, I had a lot of curiosity um, mm -hmm. about uh, astronomy topics, and I really wanted to kind of explore them on my own, you know, especially the unanswered questions. And so for me at that point, I was like, I don't know if this is what I want to do for a career, but grad school seems like the right logical move. And so I was more open-minded. It didn't have to lead to a career, but this is the right step for me next because I wanted to explore my questions of interest. And so I went mm -hmm. to grad school at Columbia and um, that was a great experience. And from there, I um, got a postdoctoral fellowship at NASA, um, which was right after grad school. Um, and that was at Goddard Space Flight Center. And you know, things kind of fell into place and it led to my current position as a research astrophysicist and staff scientist in the High Energy um, and Research Archive Center. So I think I, I had a path, but I took some um, alternative routes and I also took some time to um, kind of decide if the next step was the right one and I took it in baby steps. I think that that was for mm -hmm. me, something that was not uh, told that this is a good idea, you know, it was, there was, there's definitely a path that people say that you should take if you want to do this for a career, and, um, and that was fine, but for me, I needed to take it a little slower and, yeah. you know, analyze each step along the way. So you mentioned you took an alternative path to getting to where you are today. Could you speak more on how, um, you had no role models, and you were feeling burnt out. Can you explain what that felt like, especially, I think you were in a very important stage in your career where you, you weren't sure what you really wanted, and taking some time off seemed to really help you figure that out. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, I was at UC Berkeley, and there were no female faculty at the time that I was there. I think that, you know, the situation's better now. Um, but at the time, there was, there was none zero. And of the male faculty that there were that were there, I mean, I had labs that went until, you know, past midnight. And um, a lot of the faculty were still there. And I was kind of thinking, huh, don't these people have families and other things going on? And, you know, my own teachers would sometimes 
professors would sometimes say, oh, I have to, you know, I'm going to teach this class that goes until midnight, and then I'm going to jump on a plane and go travel to, like, Europe, and then I have a conference there. But I'll be back on Tuesday, and I'll be back to teaching. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I felt burned out as a student doing this for four years, and it wasn't, you know, anywhere near. I, I think it was like I couldn't see the horizon. I couldn't see the end of working really, really hard. And I was working really hard as an undergraduate, but to think that, you know, this is sort of the level of um, intensity that you have to keep at all times, it was, it was a little bit overwhelming for me. And um, I, I wondered about, you know, if they have families and what that looks like. And so, you know, I know anecdotally that some of them did have families, but again, I heard mostly like, I hate to say it like this, but their wives were the ones who were raising their children. And so, you know, considering that, like, I don't know, that was not something that I was ready to give up, um, you know, possibly having an, having a family or, or other things going on in my life. I think I'm also... Um, at the time, I, I was very much into dance, and I had other hobbies that, um, you know, astronomy is a lot of what I was interested in, but it wasn't everything that I was interested in. I had other interests as well. And so for me to, you know, see only people who were in it 180%, in my opinion, um, was too much. And um, I think that actually I got to grad school and um, it's, it's a funny thing that I heard, but um, this was a, it's a great grad school, right? Columbia is not, not a joke. But um, someone said, well, you know, the professors understand you're in New York City, and so you should go out and enjoy some of your time. But, you know, of course you have to work hard, too. And, in fact, I saw that. I saw that, you know, sometimes, like, the chair of our department would have um, – you know, opera tickets, and maybe he wasn't able to make it, but he would say, you know, does anyone want it? And it was sort of assumed that, you know, you play hard, you work hard, you get the most out of life, and, and, and I saw a lot more balance. And so I think that that was one of the things that made me think, okay, you know, and also by that time, I think the tides were turning, and we had younger faculty who did have families. We had men, we had women uh, join the faculty. And so I was able to see sort of... Um, you know, how it is that people are managing and balancing and it is possible. And that really kind of renewed my focus. And, um, and in the meantime, I had time to explore things that, you know, were using astronomy, but not, not doing it full time and definitely not in research and, and it didn't fulfill me. And so I kind of, you know, tested out paths that to me led to a dead end. So I became a lot more motivated that this was what I wanted to do. So it sounds like um, you had a lot that you were trying to navigate here. I was wondering if so if there was somebody who influenced you on your journey to sticking with this. Was there somebody who was a, a mentor for you throughout this? Yeah, I mean, I am. I don't say anyone in particular, but there's a lot of people who said or did little things. Even I don't know if they know the difference that they made. But for example, um, this this uncle of mine who showed me Saturn. Um, unfortunately, he's deceased, but he, um, you know, he never got to see me become an astrophysicist. But I know that that would probably thrill him because um, you know he showed me Saturn and it kind of changed my life. Um, and, and then there was the scientist I job shadowed, 
um, you know, who I see sometimes in professional circles, but um, I don't know if, if I, you know, if he realizes that this, that experience made such a big difference. And in terms of grad school and my current um, supervisor, I, I have, you know, strong mentors and also peers, people who I went through grad school with, um, and actually undergrad and my research experiences with who I still keep in touch with. And they are there to listen, empathize, and they encourage me along the way. And I think the main thing is, you know, with peers is the shared experience where you realize that, um, you know, a lot of what you're finding is a struggle that you feel like, oh, maybe this is, maybe I'm not meant to do this. This is too hard. And you want to kind of give up and you realize, no, other people are struggling too. Some of them, you know, say it or are able to admit it. And some of them kind of struggle silently. But everybody is, is you know, has doubts and um, has, we're all human. So we all have, you know, sort of the, uh, what we call imposter syndrome, you know, should I be doing this? If, if good things are happening, is it because I deserve it or is it just a coincidence or, you know, something like that, that, um, that we kind of go through together. And, and so for me, I think, I think I credit a lot of it to, um, the support network that you, you make along the way. And I can't think of one particular person. Antara, I remember you had said, that women you had noticed in, in this field tend to take on more of the child care. And I think that ties into a little bit about Cecilia Pinkaposhkin. So women in astronomy, a hundred years ago when she made her discovery, were discriminated against. They weren't allowed to hold positions. They weren't allowed to um, be in the observatories with the men um, observing at night. And so I was wondering, as a woman in science, do you think your situation, the situation has changed since then? Um, I mean, in terms of child rearing, I, I, I'm not sure because, I mean, they still say that I think women carry, you know, something like 70% of the, the home life burden. Um, my personal experience, you know, my husband and I have very... Um, I would say a very nice balance and I, it, it's probably 50-50 but not necessarily like 50% of everything but you know he does some things more and I do some things more and so it ends up being pretty equal and from what I've seen of peers again and even young faculty um, when I was going through grad school I would say that that it was it's hard to tell but it, it was close to parity um, and so that that's a good that's a good change. Um, I think also what I was saying about um, what I had observed as an undergraduate um, was more the faculty were men um, and it was their wives who were doing a lot of the child rearing and, and home life things. Um, I, I, don't, I didn't see them necessarily. It was just sort of my impression. Um, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe they did a lot and then they came back to work <laughs> at midnight to do their astronomy research. I don't know. Um, but in any case, uh, from the statistics I've heard, I know that it's not exactly even, even now. So, um, but I think in general, of course, there's been changes since Celia's time. Um, for one thing, there's a lot more encouragement for women to go into STEM fields and also awareness of the issues um, for keeping women in these fields. But change does take time. And so um, 
the balance isn't at parity yet. We can just tell by the number of faculty at, you know, um, most, most universities, they're not, it's not equal. And even if it is, it's equal, you know, it's the junior faculty that are maybe close, closer to parity than, than the senior faculty. But I would say it's not even about women and balance, but it's really diversity isn't representative because it's not just about women, but any underrepresented group, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think we've had sort of um, some reckoning with, you know, some of the sexual harassment issues that are in the news now, um, but also, um, you know, other things that are in the news that are resulting in sort of these diversity inclusion initiatives. And so I'm hoping that, you know, with more, uh, more of the reality coming to light and, um, you know, it is also telling us that we're not, we're not anywhere near an ideal situation. But, you know, as we kind of grapple with sort of where the, there's unfairness, I hope that there will be more opportunity for advancement. I certainly hope so, too. Thank you, Antara. It was really great to hear about your experiences in science. We'll pause here for now. I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation next time and hearing more about your research. That's all for now, folks. Tune in next time for part three of Hydrogen Hunters, where we chat with Antara about exploring the universe with hydrogen. I'm interested in both how hydrogen acts as a fuel, because this is what is being turned into new stars, but also how the stars then interact with the surrounding hydrogen once they become stars. you're getting an idea of what is basically recycled material from the insides of stars. In the meantime, join us at universeunplugged.org diaries for fun extras and a place for you to ask any questions you might have. I'm Ruto Bernadas, and thanks for listening to NASA's Universe of Learning's Diaries of the Cosmos.